0: And be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him they asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinabad and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. The Word of God.
1: Well, it is good to be able to share this morning. I want to thank Gary for for teaching last week. It was uh, good to hear him again. And it was... It was, I appreciated his willingness to step into that into that space again. Uh, last weekend, I was able to go to a singles conference at Centre Street Church, and uh, it was one of those opportunities for me that uh, I felt like, um, I certainly felt like an outsider uh, in a lot of ways, uh, where it was this conference that was basically for, there was 300, 400 uh, single individuals, single people of all ages that were there, and, and uh, it was just, just a really great opportunity for me to be able to hear the, the perspective of singles who may not necessarily have a, uh, who may not necessarily feel like they have a, a loud voice in the church. And I, I was certainly that something became very evident during this conference was this, this sense of, to be very blunt, frustration towards the church. And, uh, and, and so it became, it was one of those opportunities for me to be able to, to hear a perspective uh, that, that I don't necessarily get to hear that frequently. And it was amazing to me how out of that, that conference, uh, even though I was planning on, t- on speaking on this particular subject, how it, how it tied in with um, the next two weeks. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be walking through a series called Beyond the Surface. And, uh, and one of the words that kept popping up throughout the, the singles conference was this word marginalized, that, that singles within the church uh, feel marginalized. And and I and I hadn't and to be very honest, I hadn't considered that before that singles in the church feel like a marginalized group. And and so for those of you that are single, we want to welcome you. We're glad that you're part of our church, and uh, we uh, we want to make sure that as a church that we are welcoming and inclusive to to all people, including those that, that may not be married. Uh, and so as we as we move as we continue to walk through this series be, uh, called Beyond the Surface. Uh, It's this idea of moving beyond what we see with our eyes and beginning to ask ourselves, what's going on beyond what I can see? And just like an iceberg, if you'll notice on your bulletins, there's a picture of an iceberg, and and only about 10% of what actually exists is shown above the surface. And so over the next couple of weeks, I'd like to explore that what we see, what we observe with our eyes, is only a portion of what makes up who each of us really are. And sometimes what we see doesn't tell the whole story. Jesus, he even spoke about the role of our eyes in a spiritual level in the Gospel of Matthew when he said the eyes, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, practically, we also know that the that the eyes are this amazingly intricate part of the body. That it's this miraculous tool that God has given us that that has allowed us to be able to function in a way that that is that is absolutely incredible. I did some, I was doing some research on on the eyes, and there's things in it that, that I learned that I thought, man, that is just so impressive the way that God has, even just small things like our eyes have such detail to them. For example, for every one square millimeter in our retina, it contains approximately 400,000 optical sensors. Newborn babies, though, they can only see between 18 and 15 inches in front of them clearly. That our eyesight actually produces 80% of our memories. And that our eyes are able to process 36,000 pieces of information in a single hour. That the muscles in our eyes are 100 times stronger than what they need to be to perform the function that they do. And our eyes connect us in a variety of different ways, not just physically, but also personally as well. One of the shows that Natalie and I enjoy watching is a show called The Voice. If you're not familiar with what the, the show The Voice, it is this TV show where uh, potential musical, these up-and-coming musical artists audition for the show. And, and then if they make this show, they're coached by these musical superstars. And they receive coaching and direction from these, these very successful musicians. And, and one, of the, one of the comments, one of the coaching pieces that, that is often shared toward these, these amateur musicians is make sure that you sing with your eyes open. Make sure that you look at the audience. Make sure you, make sure you connect with what they're doing, with what you're doing, with what you're saying. And the idea behind that is, to, is, is because there's this understanding that, that when, you're, when we are making eye contact, like Jill and I are making eye contact right now, that we're able to connect. Like Sig and I, when we, we make eye contact, we're connecting right now. And it's this idea that we are beginning to, to, to connect on a, on a different level than just someone who is maybe looking at their phone and just disregarding, it's, it's, the conversation is still happening around us, but we're more engaged in what's happening in front of us. Our eyes connect us to each other. I've, I, in fact, there, I had one experience a couple years ago where I was interviewing somebody, and, uh, and during the conversation I was sitting directly across from them, and typically you would expect that someone would sit and they would face you, but the person decided that they were going to sit like this. And they turned their side and they talked to me like this. And, but they were more engaged with everything else that was happening around, but not really engaging with the conversation that he and I were having. Evidently, he didn't get the job. Um, <laughs> but uh, this, it, it, our eyes draw us to a deeper level of intimacy with others. Our eyes also keep us safe, don't they? They help us to observe things happening around us that we need to react to at times. If you don't believe me, cover your eyes on the way home from church today. But our eyes also allow us to see the uniquely beautiful things around us. You know, We, could, we can go outside and we can see the snow and we can, oh man, it is gross out. But as soon as we pick up the snow and look at it that closely and realize there is something beautiful about the uniqueness of each snowflake. There's something beautiful about something that is so intricately designed that that we have to be in awe of that. And yet, as Jesus says, our eyes are always seeing, but never perceiving. Now, the Greek word that's used here for perceiving is this word blepo. It may be my favorite Greek word, actually, blepo. It's this idea of being translated as discerning. Our eyes are always seen but never discerning. That's our perception is, that, is what helps us to discern beyond the surface of what we see with our eyes. And it helps us to understand the who and the why. Discerning why people do the things that they do. Why do I do the things that I do? Why does, and who does God say that I am? Who does God say that you are? And it's in our ability to discern things that allows us to move beyond the surface into this this careful examination of who and why people are the way that they are. See, often we can draw conclusions about others based on their appearance, based on their ethnicity, their employment, their lifestyle choices, or the choices and decisions that they make in general. Earlier this year i was I was driving to the swimming pool where I go swimming and it was it was last winter, so it was seven in the morning or something, and it was still very dark and and uh, so I was driving and there's this there was this gentleman who pulled over and he was in a truck and he pulled over the, on the side of the road and I thought that 's really weird and kind of annoying that he would just block an entire an entire road section so that so that people couldn 't pass, seemingly to drop somebody off and, and so I zipped past him annoyed and frustrated that he was so inconsiderate of my time and 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 the people around him and and as I passed him I turned the corner and and then suddenly he this truck accelerated up behind me and the lights were flashing and he was honking his horn and and he was clearly very upset and so at the red light he pulled over and and he started yelling at me and 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 told me he was going to run me over if, I, if, I, if, if he's lucky that he, he wasn't going to run me over. And he was shaking his fist, specifically a finger. Um, and, uh, and he was, but he was very upset. And so being the, the spiritual holy man that I am, I rolled down my window. And I started yelling at him as well. And I and, uh, said, if you have not park there, if you, you know, drive, drop. And, and basically what had happened was as he was, he was dropping off his daughter for school. And I hadn't seen that. And so I just accelerated past and annoyed at the, the slight inconvenience that I had experienced. In his, in his mind, though, he felt as though that I was close to running over his child. And, and so he was obviously very upset. And so as he and I sat in our cars yelling at each other like a couple of Neanderthals, um, I, I began to realize that my eyes had seen a parked car, but my perception, my discernment, hadn't bothered to ask why. His eyes had seen an impatient driver, but his discernment, his perception, hadn't bothered to ask why either. Now, were we both in the wrong? Yeah, we were. Had we bothered to perceive rather than just see, we could have actually both probably prevented the whole situation because we would have been able to discern what was happening in front of us, what would have happened around us. And so we both saw the actions of the other person, but we lacked the perception to go beyond the surface. We saw the 10%, but we didn't bother asking, what is below that? Clinical psychologist Brene Brown, she, she concluded, she's done studies around this and, and has concluded that one of the reasons why this happens, why we fail to go beyond the surface, is because of our natural tendency to write internal storylines about other people. For example, when we, make, when we observe someone, a decision that they've made, a behavior pattern, a practice, a word, and we, we, immediately draw, we immediately draw a conclusion about them, we write this story about them, without the full breadth of why they chose to do that, why they said what they did. For even, even though for me and this other driver, this truck driver, we were part of the same experience, we were seeing the same thing from different perspectives, we both saw the same things, but yet we, we wrote a storyline about the other person. And so we both saw drivers who were being dummies, who weren't taking the dr- other drivers and the safety of other people into consideration. Here's the thing. For me and the guy in the truck, we were observing the same experience, but our interpretation of our actions were different based on the perceptions of that person because of the storyline that we had written. So we see a driver doing something dumb on the road, and we think, that guy is so careless. How did he get his license? We see someone panhandling for money, and, and we think, that guy is just lazy. There's lots of jobs out here. We see a child acting out at the grocery store or at the restaurant and wonder, why haven't the parents done anything with that kid yet? We see a teenager dressed a certain way, maybe piercings, tattoos, and assume that they're just crying out for attention. Now, for the driver of the truck, he saw my driving and concluded that I was just careless and just driving recklessly. For me, I saw the truck driver and and concluded that he was just being selfish because he wasn't thinking about people like me, the rest of the drivers on the road. So when my kids are rude to me, they're disrespectful, the story that I write is that they're spoiled and ungrateful, and they don't appreciate all the good things that I do for them. When my neighbors don't mow the lawn, I conclude that either they're dead or they're lazy. Some of them I wonder... When my server at the restaurant doesn't get the food for me as quickly as I want, I think, where's their work work ethic? When a family member doesn't make, when they make a decision that I don't agree with, I conclude that they aren't as intelligent or as insightful or as spiritual as me. One of the primary reasons why we do this is actually a way to protect ourselves. We protect ourselves from intimacy when we do this. We protect ourselves from from a deeper relationship with those around us because we just say, what, that 10%? That is enough. And so I'm going to write a story that fits within that 10%, yet there's a whole storyline that's happening underneath. And unfortunately, though, as we write these stories in our minds, we draw conclusions about people based on their actions and the limited scope of what we see in that moment rather than asking the why question. So imagine for me, with me for a moment. In fact, actually, you could participate if you'd like. If you put up your hand and just create a little window, and put it up to your eye, close your other eye, just put it up and just stare at me. So all of you should be able to see me, and that's it. The idea behind this is you can see me You can see, all you can see is a limited picture of me, but you can't see all the surroundings that are are happening around me. You don't know what's happening over here, over here. All you can see is specifically that little window that is me. And what we miss is that there's this entire narrative happening in people's lives that prevent us from fully understanding why people behave the way that they do. Because as Jesus said, we're always seeing, but never perceiving. We're always seeing this limited picture, but we don't have the discernment to understand everything else that's happening around them. And this passage that we read this morning from 1 Samuel is an example where I think some some of this is happening. There's a lot happening here contextually that I'm not going to get into this morning. But where we enter this moment in the history of Israel where God is moving and has tasked the prophet Samuel to select the next king of Israel after Saul. And so so God tells Samuel, go to Bethlehem and meet with Jesse. And out of of his sons, one of them will, will be the next king. And so when Samuel gets there, God instructs Samuel, meet with each of Jesse's sons, and out of this selection process, he meets with each of the, each of the boys and he begins to try to discern which of these young men will be the next king. Now, I don't know if you've ever been part of a selection process where you're where you have been the one trying to choose somebody or you're the one on the on the, the selection process, being selected. But I gotta say, I was trying to think of like a parallel to, to what Samuel was what Sammy might be experiencing, the first thought that came to mind was, I experience this at a, at a grocery store all the time. When I go to the produce section, I feel like there's an, any number of produce items that I have no idea if they're the right item to buy or not. So, for example, I go to, to the pineapple section, and I have no idea which pineapple is the right one. I can guess, but I don't know if this is the right, the right, pine, right, the, the right fruit to buy but I figured out the trick with pineapple. If you flip it over and you smell it, and it smells sweet, that's how you know. Or bananas. You know if they're yellow, they're ready to be eaten. Not the green ones. Watermelons, if you knock on it, you hold a close ear and you knock on it, there's a little single yellow spot on the watermelon, then you know that that one's good to eat. Avocados need to be firm but not squishy. Now, I've got to say, though, I'm not a biblical historian, so I don't think that's the selection process that Samuel went through as he selected these, as he met with each of these boys, just knock them on the head or give them a big old squish or inspected them for spots. But what we discover, what we read is that Samuel was using his own criteria for selecting the next king. For Samuel and Jesse, they both concluded that the next king... would obviously be the oldest son. Eliab seemed to be the one that would fit the criteria of that culture at that time. The cultural norm of that day was that the oldest son received the birthright. The oldest son carries the most responsibility and privilege in that culture. They would receive the largest inheritance. So, So Samuel meets with Eliab, but God says it's not him. Maybe it's Abinadab then. Maybe it's the second oldest. Maybe God's got, he's up to something, maybe. So maybe it's Abinadab, second oldest. No, not him either. Then he meets with the third old, Shema, But it wasn't him either. So for, finally, Samuel meets with each of the seven sons, but none of them are affirmed as the next king. And now Samuel's confused, right? Because the storyline that he had written was that each of these men had to have, based on the surface, one of these seven should be the next king of Israel? They fit. The, they were obviously good-looking men. We see that in scripture. They carried the stature of being the oldest males of the family. And so Sam, so Samuel now has written the storyline that any one of us, I think, would write. He's like, I mean, look at them. It seems like we've, they've got it all together. They're the full package. They're, they're good looking. They're, they're, they have prestige. They have status. Everything the people of, that the people of Israel would want in a king, these guys have it. But God has a different story in mind. He has a different story that he wants to write in the history of Israel, and it includes the youngest. You see, there was one more son that Jesse had that wasn't even invited to this selection process. David. David was the youngest of the eight brothers. He was the lowest in stature. And although his birth order was completely out of his control, it impacted everything available to him. He would get whatever was left over after the seven brothers had their turn. Whether it was livestock, inheritance, family status. Everything that the oldest son, Eliab, was, David wasn't. And So on the surface, it should have been Eliab. But God says, let's look beyond the surface. And I think the fact that David wasn't even invited to this selection process just shows what his father thought of him. It gives gives an idea to us of how low David's stature was in the eyes of culture and even in his own family. Where Jesse, David's own father, was told that one of his boys would be selected as the next king of Israel and he didn't even bother to get him. David wasn't even an option in the storyline that Jesse had written. But in God's story for David and the people of Israel, God reminds Samuel in verse 7, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And it's here that we that even the most spiritual of the most spiritual of us like Samuel, the the ones most closest to God struggle with assigning value and worth based on their external measurements. Now I don't know if you have ever felt judged because of your appearance. Maybe it was the color of your skin or your accent or your weight or your clothing. Or maybe something else entirely. But God reminds us in this verse that our outward appearance, our performance, our behavior are not how God assigns value, importance, and significance. Let me say that again. That our outward appearance, our performance, our behavior are not how God assigns value, importance, and significance. David had the same physical traits as his brother. We we read that he was was a good-looking guy. But there was something else that set him apart from everyone else. And it it was beyond the surface. And it reminds us that the thing that God really looks at is our heart. God chose the youngest boy in the family and reminds us that it's not what's on the surface that is important, but it's what's beneath the surface that God is concerned about. God identified this teenage boy who didn't have any power, any stature. He had no influence because of his birth order. But then to top it off, we find out what he does for work. We find out that he's a shepherd. I mean, shepherds carried no prestige in that position. There's no possible way that that someone could be a shepherd and then become the next king. It was a terrible job and everyone knew it. See, the shepherd's job was to take care of sheep and make sure that they weren't, the sheep weren't killed, by, killed or eaten by jackals and wolves. His job was to make sure that the sheep were safe from the heat or the rain or windstorms. And yet, somewhere, somehow, God looked past all of these qualities that for most people would say are disqualifiers, even David's father. And God looked beyond the surface and saw a young man who who although he didn't have his life put together, his heart was set on the things of God. And his life was devoted to serving God and delighting in him. So that the question that I think we need to wrestle with this morning is, well, how do we do that? How do we look beyond the surface? How do we get there in our relationships? How do we get there with the people around us? How do we look beyond the 10%? Because I suspect that we we have written stories about each other, too. So here are some ways that we can rewrite the stories we write about others. Ask questions to understand. That's the first one. Ask questions to, uh, to, to understand. Remember we said that the idea is to, that when we go beyond the surface, it helps us to understand the why people are the way that they are. And so we need to understand the why. Why do, why do each of us choose the lives that we choose? Choose the priorities that we choose? Choose the relationships that we choose? Choose the lifestyles that we have? We need to understand the why. Because here's the thing, that when we start to ask questions to other people, when we begin to, to explore and try to understand where other people are coming from, what it does is the stories that we have written about each other is when we begin to ask those questions, it allows those people to, to scribble out the story that we have written and allows them to be able to rewrite that story so that we can understand their perspective better. As the general rule, one of the most effective ways to ask good questions, especially when you're, trying to under, when you're trying to answer the question why, is to not ask why. This is actually a counseling technique. If, uh, where in, in, in counseling sessions, most therapists will not ask why questions. Because what, what, what they understand is that when we ask a why question, so Jason, why did you do this? Immediately in our subconscious, it's not, oh, he's just trying to understand me. He is, I have to defend my actions. And so we immediately create this, this feeling of defensiveness when we ask a why question. So why did you do this? So instead, we just make a subtle shift. So what were the reasons that you made that decision? What were the reasons you chose that? And what it does is it just, it, it, it shifts our mentality. It shifts the response, the person who's being asked the question from, I have to defend my actions to, oh, they're inviting me in to understand. This week as I was preparing this, this message um, that one, of the, one of the ladies who's homeless, she came into the, came, came into the church and, and they come in from time to time. And, and uh, now that the weather's getting colder, they come in pretty, a little bit more regularly. And one of the ladies, she came in and, and uh, Tina, she, she recognized that this one lady was, seemed to look a little t- more tired than normal. So Tina invited her in and said, why don't you have a seat? Tina, by the way, if you don't know, is our church administrator. And, and as this lady sat with Tina, and I was in my office and trying to write my sermon, but I, I the church was quiet at that point, and so I was able to eavesdrop on the conversation. And by the way, I asked for Tina's permission if I could share the story as well, but um, as this lady sat with Tina, I was amazed at the tenderness that Tina asked questions to her, where Tina began to just ask her questions just to try to genuinely understand this lady's story. Try to understand why she was living on the street, where she slept when it was cold. And over the course of the conversation, Tina asked, like, where do you get food? She said, "Oh, I manage. And Tina asked, well, have you had lunch today? And she said, no, I haven't eaten today. And so Tina had, was in the middle of eating her lunch, and so she gave her the rest of her lunch. And as Tina and this, this lady sat across from each other and Tina just asked questions and was just so gentle with her, it was, it, what, it, what it allowed this, over the course of this conversation was for this moment, this, this space, where Tina was able to get a glimpse into the story that was part of this lady's life. Because you see, what happens sometimes is we see some of these homeless people, for example, and we just draw conclusions about them. But Tina was able to ask these, these bold questions to this, this lady and invited her into a space of safety and vulnerability where she shared things with Tina that, that, that shocked her, that, that shocked me. And we began to hear this story that, that was much deeper than what we'd ever knew or believed could be true. But then something changed. Where instead of this, this homeless lady now answering questions this young lady started to ask Tina questions. Questions that she had been struggling with. Things that she had been trying to work through in terms of her relationships with with different men. Things that she just needed help processing with, but, but she hadn't found the right person to discuss them with. And Tina was able to offer some really practical insight. But then she said these profound words. Do you ever pray? You know, Jesus loves you. Do you ever pray? And it's in that space, that sacred space, there wasn't anything overly spiritual about it. It was a very natural, inconsequential conversation between these two ladies. But in this moment, Tina was able to, where it was just between two ladies, Tina was now able to point point this lady towards Jesus and invite Jesus into the conversation. And it was, there was as I said, there's nothing overtly spiritual about that conversation. But Tina took the time to ask questions. She took time to understand the why without asking why. And then she was able to point this person to, to, to Jesus. The next thing we can do is learn people's names. And I know for some of you are like, I suck at learning people's names. And I've got to say, this may be a really, like a, this may seem like a really small thing but I want to show you something here in this passage. If you look through this entire passage that Malcolm read for us this morning, we've seen a number of different names in this section of Scripture. We see King Saul. We see Samuel. We see Jesse. We see Eliab. We see Abinadab. We see Shema. You'll notice that in these first 12 verses, whose name isn't mentioned? David. And even when David is directly referenced... Jesse refers to him as the youngest. That there is no honor given to him in these first 12 verses. There is no acknowledgement of him by name. But we read at the end of verse 12, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then the next verse, verse 13, says this, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And the first time we read David's name is after he has been anointed as the next king of Israel and given a place of honor. Learning the names of people around us is a way to honor others. For some of us, it requires a lot of work to do that. But it is important. It communicates value and importance to others. One of the comments is, as, as Tina and this lady were were. Chatting, I, could, I didn't want to interrupt that space because I thought that it was significant and sacred at that point. But I, I, could, I, I heard that she was getting ready to leave, and so I wanted, just to, I wanted to say hi, and so I went into the office and said, Hey, how's it going? And she said, Doing well. "So Are you keeping warm? Well, I'm trying to. And I said, Well, anything we can do to help with that? And she said, Well, if you have a blanket or a sleeping bag or something. And so I said, Okay, well, I'll look into that. And she said, You know one of the things that I love about coming here And i got to be honest, my thought was, well, because we have free Wi-Fi, um, because you can charge your phone, because it's warm, the chairs are comfortable. This is what she said. You call me by my name. You call me by my name. She understood. She knew that we were able to look beyond the surface and see her for who she is seeing her with value and worth and calling her by name. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Let's begin to look beyond the surface. Let's pray. Jesus, as we continue to reflect on your truth, we confess that that we have a tendency, we have a pattern of writing stories about others. And it's only a glimpse of of who they are. Help us to to ask the why question without asking why. Help us to uh, try to understand others well. Jesus, we want to be a people that, that engage meaningfully with other people. We recognize that we have a barrier that, that sometimes gets in the way because we have this tendency to look at outward appearance. God, we desire intimacy with you and with others. Help us to engage in that well now. Amen.